young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. A boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and your stories, too. There's an Old West adage that goes something like this. God created man, and Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. On this day in 1862, Samuel Colt passed. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now on to the story of Samuel Colt. Samuel Colt is born July 19, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of 6 to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies, but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. 
you had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock, and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler's streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat, and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half-hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? A new revolver works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Colt would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality. It's going to completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more of the life of Samuel Colt, who died on this day in history in 1862. One, two, 
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's going to go off at the same time or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt revolver. And every ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. 
For Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, in influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design. It's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers, settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. 
It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Colt perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back, reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a bored-through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, the revolver's story, here on Our American Stories. And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundance of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colt's 
biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gun making is born. Smith and Wesson. Samuel Colt built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now is just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years, but the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers, and that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow Elizabeth is left in control of the company and a personal fortune of 15 million dollars, the equivalent of over 300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running even as the war wages on. After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5th, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, 
the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Antritz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories too, and that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, but out where the West begins, the first one was about business leaders and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been of business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway. The story of the piano makers in New York. Sam Walton, who changed retail forever. And Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen. And he was the founder of FedEx. 
and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learn from the Colt story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver, its story. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. More after these messages. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. It's titled, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare. As you wrote, quote, In 1976, 40% of mothers aged 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family. When we first met, before we were even dating, My wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have. And and I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from. So that always seemed perfectly normal. And then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us. So we both had a sense that four was a, a nice number of children to have. And we were very lucky, and we we had four children in the first 10 years uh, of our marriage. Actually, I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage. And then um, a couple years ago, we were talking, and I forget who said it first, but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? And the other one said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so then we did. And I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply. It was not, we didn't go and check our bank account. We knew that we would be as... um, as as impoverished uh, with five, we would be we would be it, it, you know either way we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five. It, it, you know once you're up to four kids and and you're on the salary of a, of a writer uh, and and uh, you know my wife is is mostly a homemaker though she's a lawyer by training. You know we're not wealthy people. We don't have regular paid childcare. But if you're going to be home with four, you might as well be home with five, and it's one more person to love. So. I don't, have a, I don't have any profound thoughts on it, except we did what we wanted to do. And it's a free country, so we, we were able to do that. Indeed. And, and by the way, you note in the piece, we are not conservative traditionalists, not Orthodox Jews, old school Catholics, or Mormons, nor nope. are we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle-class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. 
So, so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just, we're, we're shrinking in numbers. There's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is, is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for, for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community that's not all based in a couple smaller sects. It's auspicious if there are, you know, lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I take I take some pleasure in the fact. I mean, I, it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know of others for whom this is a real choice. You know irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities, Jewish is one, and you know, American is another, but, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two. And I think it's great if there are models of people having four or five. Indeed. And I think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five, six kids, you're going to get some really weird glances. And, and by, by virtue of the opposite, there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids, you'll get some weird looks. And there were a bunch of other becauses, and this is the answer to why did you have a fifth child? And I'm going to go through a few of them, and I'd love sure. to have you comment. Because every one of our four children has improved my life. Talk about that. Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if, if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or you know having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along, within a few weeks or months, you can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. Right, sometimes. <laughs> right? Sometimes I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away. And, you know, at those times, it's, that's what grandma and grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think. Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person. And if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone says, oh, of course, you know, how, how could you have a neat house? So it does, it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating. Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two, if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child, or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, 
I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness, and um, and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um, I'm not great at being at at solitude. Uh, some people are. I'm not. I like having people around, and it, it's reassuring to me. So having children around is is very comforting. I mean, they are they are they're children, but they're also companions and friends and and comforters, and I think that's really nice. Because my 11-year-old likes poker, and for that, she needs more players. <laughs> well, that's, and that is true. We've trained up the 10-year-old. Our 8-year-old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more, Anna, who's 5, and then the, the new boy. We'll get, we'll get him there when he's 3 or 4. But if we could have a good 5- or 6-person you know, hold'em game with just our family, that would be a huge win. Yeah, and you're going to have to teach me on this, because my 13-year-old is a fearless hold'em player, because he's always playing with my money. Well, you got to play with chips. I mean, you don't don't actually, you know, when he's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money. Indeed. Okay, a couple of more becauses. Because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad. I do. I do. I think that's. I think siblinghood is is wonderful. I was really lucky. I am really lucky to have three siblings and. Um, and it's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best. They're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household with your parents, your grandparents, and that's a very special relationship. And I do, I don't believe that. I don't believe what some of my only children friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference, or close friends make up the difference. I don't think it's the same. Absolutely, and because not being inclined to rock climbing microdosing or day trading, I need something a little risky. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle-aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do, again, outside of the family uh, poker table. And, uh, but, you know, having a fifth kid, strikes people as, as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm, I'm happy to... <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't wear weird bow ties. So right. <laughs> what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger. Well, that's true. And I, I you know, how could... I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic, obvious way... It gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say, being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one. Um, and look, let's be frank, it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid. I mean, I think that I think marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I, don't, I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children. Well, there's more ties that bind in the end. I mean, infinitely more ties that bind uh, with more kids. Because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten, and it will help if I know... It's not my last first day of kindergarten. Well, that's true. I'm very sappy. So <laughs> every, every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as I, need, I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now, you know, I'm 44 and my son was just born. So 
you know, I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then, maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and, uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more, but, uh, but not yet. Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of the Wall Street Journal essay, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark has a Ph.D. in Religious Studies at Yale. His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing, well, about all kinds of things for places like the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and it's time now for our American Dreamers series, and today you're in for a treat, a celebration of the life of Tim Duncan. And if you're not a sports fan or a basketball friend, you're saying, Tim who? Because he wasn't Michael Jordan. Everybody knew Mike. He's a very different guy. This is a celebration of the life of a man who won five NBA championships, and all with the same team, the San Antonio Spurs a team he was with for his entire professional career from the day he was the number one draft pick out of Wake Forest in 1997 to his retirement in July of 2016. My goodness, that just never happens anymore. With Duncan at the helm, the Spurs won 71% of their games, the best 19-year stretch in NBA history, and better than any team in any North American team sport, too. And the Spurs never once had a losing record during his career. And never once, and this is extraordinary, never once missed the playoffs. Upon his retirement, CBS Ken Berger wrote this. Tim Duncan leaves in his wake an unprecedented era of team success that in some ways detracted from his own individual greatness. They'll never talk about points, rebounds, or dunks when it comes to the big fundamental. They'll talk about winning. They'll talk about championships, and there can be no greater testament to excellence. Here's just a little bit of Tim Duncan's personal excellence that was obscured by his greater excellence. He averaged 19 points and almost 11 rebounds a game over 19 years. He was a two-time NBA MVP, three-time NBA Finals MVP, and NBA Rookie of the Year, and I could go on and on and on. And get this, basketball wasn't even his first sport. If it wasn't for Hurricane Hugo destroying his family's Olympic-sized pool at his childhood home of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, we might all know Tim Duncan as an Olympic swimmer. It was only then that he found basketball because he needed a new sport. That's crazy. When he finally retired after 19 season, he did so in perfect Tim Duncan style. He said nothing. He had the San Antonio Spurs put out a press release and he didn't even have a quote. The only interview he eventually did was with a childhood friend on an internet radio program. This is so cool. (laughs) 
He left behind a legacy of being one of the greatest NBA players of all time, but perhaps his greatest legacy that makes him a true standout in this fame maniac culture is his unassuming humility. It was never about Tim Duncan. His life's work had spoken for itself, being a part of a great team. Oh my goodness, he stole my heart. On December 18th, 2016, the San Antonio Spurs held a ceremony to retire his jersey. And I'm sure Tim didn't want to be there. You could tell he didn't want to be there if you watched the video. You could see him squirming about the fact that he had to sit there while other people showered him with praise. But he had to be there. They wanted to celebrate him. A sold-out crowd of over 18,000 fans. And we're going to bring you highlights from this extraordinary occasion, starting with his teammate, Tony Parker. Because Timmy will play the game so easy. Like, you'll have, like, I, mean, I talked to Mano, I was like, Timmy was not that good tonight. I mean, he had, like, 30 points and 20 rebounds. And I was like, that was a quiet 30 and 20. I was like, that's the only guy that can do that that many times. Every night, I look at the stat sheet. My first two years in the league, he won MVP two years in a row. My first two years. And every night, I look, and I'm like... Wow, 40 and 26, I didn't even see it. Like, that's crazy to do that. That's very hard because he's so unselfish. And everybody keeps saying that he's unselfish because he makes everybody around him better. And that's the true definition of a superstar. And next up was another teammate, Manu Ginobili. I just want to talk about um, how how tough of a competitor he was. Many of the games uh, in which he struggled, struggled for his standards, which was probably a 26 and 10, uh, he was very upset because maybe he missed a big shot, maybe he was not as sharp as he wanted to, and so many times he came to the huddle and said, that's on me guys, that's, this is my loss, it was my bad, I wasn't ready. And we knew that we looked at, at each other and say. Oh my, tomorrow he's going to be there very early. <laughs> he's going to be very early there. So he would, next morning, he would get his headphones, get into the gun, the, you know, the rebounding and passing machine, and shoot there for hours. You know, right-handed hook, free throw, banker, up fake, dribble, shoot. And you go there early to do treatments because you were tired, and the guy was there shooting and, and showing everybody else how, how it's done. And Ginobili continued with a story he'd never shared before with anyone. It was 2006, playoffs in Sacramento. Uh, we were up to one, uh, and Bob designed a play. I had to, to, to finish the game. We were tied. I not only messed that play up, I turned it over, but they ran on transition, they scored, and they, we lost. It was 2-2, uh, and I was devastated. I was truly embarrassed to to have turned the ball over like that, and it really hurt me. I wanted to vanish. I wanted to dig a hole in the floor and just hide there forever. Uh, so I went to my room, I hid there. I didn't want to talk to anybody, so I turned the phone off, and the uh, hotel room started to ring. I said, I don't want to talk to anybody, so I ignored it. Started to ring again, so I pick it up and hang it. Third time, I hang it again. Fourth time, I unplugged it. I said, yeah, come find me now. But then, there was another one in the bathroom. By the, by the fifth time, I go pick it up, 
And he said, what? And it was, Nanu. <laughs> That's the way he called me. Nanu. Uh, he goes, what's up, buddy? What, CD? I don't want to talk to anybody. You know what happened. Come on. Come with me. Come with me. And he started insisting, 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 and you don't say no to TD. So he said it. And he invited me to dinner. We talked for hours. We talked about computers, cars, TV shows, whatever. The whole night shift, my mental state shifted. And, you know, I had a, a way better night than could have been otherwise. Those are the type of gestures that I'm pretty sure you can go and ask most of his teammates around, and they all saw it. And that's leadership, folks. Tim Duncan was celebrating his retirement here on Our American Stories. stories and we're celebrating the life of Tim Duncan because the city of San Antonio celebrated it recently and it's a life worth celebrating. Tim Duncan, a big star who didn't act like a star and didn't bring attention on himself because he was too busy winning championships and too busy doing things like you just heard, trying to bring his boy Manu Ginobili back to life by going out and forgetting about the mistake because everybody makes mistakes and and Timmy Duncan knew that nobody beats himself up harder than Manu Ginobili. You don't need to go in and yell at Manu. You need to go out and have him play a video game or have a drink. And now, and ultimately, well, Tim Duncan did have to get up and talk. And before that, though, coach had to. And there was only one coach, and it was Greg Popovich, Pop. But when Popovich gets the microphone, he immediately hands it over to David Odom who was Tim Duncan's college coach at Wake Forest. Out of respect for Dave, out of respect for embracing and grooming this unlikely basketball player from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Here's Dave. As I walked up here, I was reminded that myself and two of Tim's college teammates are sitting up here someplace. We're probably the only three people in this building tonight that have seen something that Tim Duncan's done that not a single person, including the coaching staff here at, uh, in the Spurs, have done. Tim's first game at Wake Forest was something like zero points, <laughs> three rebounds, and one block. He said seven rebounds. I'm not going to argue with him. (laughs) But the story is we lost to a Division II team (laughs) from Alaska where they don't even play basketball. (laughs) And I said to him after it was over, Timmy, what gives? He said, Coach, I'm leaving a lot of room for growth. And he did. 22 years ago, I received a phone call 
in my office at Wake Forest. And this 6'9", 185, 190-pound islander from the Virgin Islands called and said, I want to come to Wake Forest. I want to study. I want to get my degree, which he did in four years. And I want to learn the game of basketball, and I want to play it for a career, which he's done. And by the way, he didn't just get a degree. He was also a research assistant and co-authored a book on egotism. Go figure. And he understood, Tim Duncan, what egotism and narcissism can do to a team. It can destroy it. It's actually a cancer. Anybody who's been around narcissists knows what they can do. And when Wake Forest coach Dave Odom completed his tribute, Spurs coach Greg Popovich was now ready, finally, to give his. And he talked about Tim Duncan's quirks, and in one case, how he eventually discovered that what he thought was a quirk was actually something incredibly profound. He's also strange. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had to bring carrot cake to his room, or he would be miffed. We're in a city, and I'm in a restaurant, and they have carrot cake. And so whenever that happens, I get the carrot cake, I bring it to his room like two or three in the afternoon. He might be sleeping So I just set it at the door. I don't know what mice or whatever else has been eating on it, but I I set it by the door, I'll knock, and then I'll leave. And he got used to this, so I had to do this for 20 years. (laughs) Carrot cake for 20 years. David and Bruce never bothered me that way. Sean didn't bother me that way. But, you know, Timmy's special, so he had to have have carrot cake. The first practice is his gym shorts are backwards. Reminds me of somebody now, wherever he might be. I don't know where the guys are. And what's, what's the deal? He goes, this is what I do. This is, this, is, this, is how I, this is how I roll. I looked at the coaches. They looked at me, RC, we talked. He said, I don't think we care how he wears his trunks. So he did it the entire, entire time. Uh, <laughs> he's a, uh, an enigma in some ways. Uh, you think that Kawhi Leonard doesn't talk much. When Timmy first got here, it was like mental telepathy. I would, I would say something to him, and he would stare. The same stare that, same stare that Tony gets on the court, and... I wasn't sure if he was paying attention, but, you know, he was a great collegian and played at a great program, so I'm figuring he understands what I'm saying. And finally, I realized that he understood everything I was saying, probably agreed with about half of it, but he's so respectful that he wouldn't say anything until later. He he won't do it in front of the team, and sometimes I'd be merciless. And... And for that, I'm really thankful because you allowed me to coach the team. Uh, If your superstar can take a little hit now and then, everybody else can shut the hell up and fall in line. 
And that man did that for me. And there you have it. Now we know why the Spurs were the Spurs and Coach Popovich was the coach he was. Timmy Duncan let him be the coach. And here is how Popovich, Pop, to his friends and players, closed out this tribute to Timmy Duncan. And the last comment I'm going to make uh, before I promised I wouldn't use this tissue, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, this is the... This, this is the most important comment that I can make about Tim Duncan that uh, I can honestly say to Mr. and Mrs. Duncan who have passed that that man right there is exactly the same person now as he was when he walked in the door. Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan then hugged, both fighting back tears, and then all that was left was for Duncan to say a few words. And in Tim Duncan fashion, they were short words. And between each thing he said, he held the microphone against his chin, head down, for 30 seconds, thinking about the very best words to say. Here's Tim. I've heard from teammates from the guys who have been with forever to guys they played a year or two with to these jokers over here (laughs) just an amazing response uh and just an overwhelming amount of love from these guys for what i meant to them and it doesn't even explain how much they meant to me because i got so much more from you guys, from my teammates, from these guys over here, then then they can explain that they got from me. And I know that. He next thanked Coach Popovich. Thank you, Coach Pop, for being more than a coach. For being more like a father to me. Thank you. And here's how Tim Duncan closed up the retirement ceremony for his jersey, number 21. I'm going to tell you this. I won a lot of bets tonight. I didn't wear jeans. I wore a sport coat. I didn't wear a tie, so a bunch of people knew that. Uh, And I spoke for more than 30 seconds. (laughs) Thank you, San Antonio. Thank you. And there you have it, Timmy Duncan. By the way, my favorite team of all time watching the San Antonio Spurs, and I'm a Jersey boy who's loved basketball from the earliest day, and watching that team play the way they played, one of the joys of my life, the selflessness, the way they rooted for each other, the way they covered for each other, a rare thing, and we know the heart of the team always was Tim Duncan. And of course, what a coach Popovich is, but even Pop admitted, without the star letting him take a notch at or take a shot at him, there was no chance of coaching the rest of the boys, the rest of the men. This is our American Stories, American Dreamers segment, Tim Duncan.
This is Our American Stories, and we're about to tell you the tale of hidden treasures in America. The story of Forrest Fenn is one that captured the imaginations of people all over the country and the world. Here's Jesse. In the year 2010, a wealthy art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico, by the name of Forrest Finn, hid a treasure chest worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. First of all, I'm really not that wealthy. I mean, I can live on the interest, and that's the definition of a wealthy person, I guess. I mean, uh, I have everything I want, but I don't want very much. Forrest Finn was an Air Force pilot with the rank of major, and he was awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam. I had a hard tour in Vietnam. I flew 328 combat missions in in about 348 days. I was shot down twice. I took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. I I lost 22 pounds and didn't even know it. And when I came home, I I was tired. After his time in the Air Force, Finn opened an art gallery in Santa Fe that openly sold high end forgeries of famous paintings. I had no education, I'd been a fighter pilot all my life. So when I opened my business, I didn't have a painting, knew nothing about business, knew nothing about art. Uh, And so I had to start from scratch. My first two shows, I didn't sell so much as a book. And I finally told myself that I had a little bit of money left that I'd saved 20 years in the Air Force. I said, I'm going to spend this money advertising, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to slam the door and go do something else. And it started working for me. And, And... I learned to play Monopoly in my art gallery. Every time, I, every time I, I sold a painting, I took the profit and bought two paintings. Then I took the profit and bought four paintings. And over a period of time, it, it took me two years before I could uh, finance my gallery out of accounts receivable. In 1988, Finn was diagnosed with cancer and came up with the idea during his illness to hide a chest full of treasure for anyone to go find. They gave me a one in five chance of living three years. And a lot of things were happening about that time. I was selling my gallery in Santa Fe and and I had a a lot of clients that were coming to see me to to do different things. And it just so happened that Ralph Lauren came to my house. He collects antique Indian things like I did. He didn't know that I had cancer. But we were standing in my in my library, and I had something that he wanted. It was a beautiful Sioux Indian bonnet with white ermine hang, skins hanging on it and split antelope horns, and it was a wonderful thing, and he wanted to buy it. And I said, well, I don't want to sell it. And he said, well, you have so many of those things. He said, you can't take it with you. I said, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> and, and we laughed and changed the subject. But that night I started thinking about that. Who says I can't take it with me? What do I have to live by everybody else's rules? If I'm going to die of cancer, I'm going to take some stuff with me. And I made up my mind. So I bought this beautiful little treasure chest, 10 inches by 10 inches and 6 inches high. Probably Romanesque, 11th or 12th century. Maybe it held a Bible or a book of days. But it was wonderful. Had a great patina on it. As for the treasure itself, Forrest Finn loaded the chest to the brim with gold, gemstones, and artifacts. There are 265 gold coins, American, mostly eagles and double eagles. Uh, There are some Middle Eastern gold coins that date to the 13th century. There's a little bottle of gold dust in there, and there, there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, mostly from Alaska, 
placer nuggets. Two of them are so large that, that they're the same size as a, as a hen's egg. They weigh more than a pound apiece. And there, in this chest, I put hundreds of rubies. There are two beautiful salon sapphires. There are eight emeralds, lots of little diamonds, uh, pre-Columbian wakas, uh, 2,000-year-old bracelets, and a Tyrona and Sinu necklace that dates probably 2,500 years old. The fetishes on the necklace are made out of quartz crystal and carnelian and semi-precious stones. And it, I told myself I wanted it to be visual enough so that when a person found the treasure chest and opened it for the first time, they would just lean back and start laughing. Then came the task of hiding this treasure that was worth over a million dollars somewhere up in the Rocky Mountains, which could be anywhere from New Mexico to Alaska. And when I hid the treasure chest, I had to make two trips because the thing weighs 42 pounds. It's small, but its gold is heavy. And, and when I hit it and was walking back to my car, I started laughing out loud. And I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? <laughs> but, I, but, but I had a whole card. I told myself, if I, if I decide later I didn't want to do it, I could go back and get it. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, this, this is perfect. Why, why can't I influence somebody a thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? Okay, next weekend. <laughs> if you can find it, I think it'll be worth your while. A lady reporter from Texas called me on the phone and she said, Mr. Finn, who is your audience for this strange book? I said, my audience is every redneck in Texas with a pickup truck, <laughs> a wife and 12 kids, he lost his job. I said, throw a bedroll in your back of your truck and go look for the treasure and take the kids. Get the kids out of the game room, away from their little playing machines and let them breathe the sunshine and the things that the forest has to offer. Wonderful opportunity. And I, just this last week, passed 25,000 emails from people and probably 15,000 of them have told me, Mr. Finn, we're not going to find the chest. We know that, but I want to thank you for getting me and my kids off the couch and out into the tree. Thousands of people have searched and continue to search for the hidden treasure of Forest Fenn. And there have been at least four confirmed deaths from people who were following the cryptic clues that Fenn left behind in his book, The Thrill of the Chase. The main set of clues come in the form of a riddle, a riddle that anyone can use to find the treasure for themselves. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up here creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found a blaze, Look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answers I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. 
The eccentric millionaire who hid a treasure chest of gold somewhere out in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to find. It's a strange and yet effective way to leave your mark on the world. And unlike so many others, Forrest Fenn would have done things completely different had he been given the chance. If I had my life to do over, I'd change nearly everything. I do the same thing over and over again. You know, <laughs> you, you read in, in these different magazines, they ask a question, what would you change in, in your life? I wouldn't change anything. Everything's been perfect. You know, I think that's such an uh, idiot thing to say, I think. I do the same thing over again. We, nothing wrong with slamming a door and starting out new again. Out of the night that covers me, dark is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. And I think that's a good place to stop, don't you? For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And this is our American stories. No, that's not the sound of our editing bay before we get to work. Though I wish it was. Uh, it's just a, a dad goofing off with his kids, making them laugh, tickling them, teasing them, making facial gestures. No better sound in the world than a human being laughing, young or old. Somehow as we get older, we, we don't laugh as much. Shame on us. I think that's why we have kids. And then they grow up, and we want to pull our hair out. And... We love doing stories out of the personal journal, the part of the Wall Street Journal that we know America loves, and the more Americans can get in touch with the personal part of the Wall Street Journal, called the personal journal, the better. It's in there in the fourth section of the paper. I start my day every day going there first to get my sensibilities tickled. And one story in particular caught our attention a while back, and it was, Why Are Some People More Ticklish Than Others? That was really the title. And I'm a curious guy, and it has a picture of a mom, by the way, tickling her child, and it's a beautiful picture. And I want to lead with the read of the, of the piece. It starts off like this. Wiggly fingers approaching the armpits can elicit giggles from some people. For others, even a feather caressing the toes will bring about no response. Scientists are perplexed by the variability and the origin of the tickle response. And that's why we brought Heidi Mitchell on to join us. Heidi, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. So how, but before I even start, where do you get this story? I mean, how does this story stumble upon you? 
Well, we have this column every other Tuesday in the personal journal section, and they are they are quirky. I'll give you that. Um, they this one came from the editor of the section, who happens to have mm, I think a three year old. And so she was, it was actually her idea. She was wondering, how come he's so ticklish and I'm not ticklish at all? So we're all like around, hovering around 40 and did a little census and none of us are ticklish anymore. So we wanted to know why the heck not. Wait a second. Wait a second. You work with a bunch of people who aren't ticklish anymore. What's wrong with you all? (laughs) Well, you know, we took very scientifically a feather around and tickled people and they didn't, they didn't giggle. (laughs) They giggled. Yeah, we giggle because we think it's fun and funny. But um, but that, that that response of the actual tickle feeling, it just is it isn't there anymore. And so tell me this, Pretty much and, nobody, no, and, and nobody. Tell me that. And by the way, this is the burning question column. By the way, in the personal journal, and this obviously was the burning question we you are had fun, to solve. Interesting people at the Wall Street Journal that happen to not be ticklish, along with the rest of the world. Wow. So <laughs> so let's let's work this down now. So you went and you talked to neuroscientists and one David J. Linden and he was at John Hopkins. I mean, pretty fancy name, pretty fancy uh, hospital. What what did what did what did he teach you? Well, I love this guy because he spends all day studying um, mice in the lab um, and he happens to be so he's a neuroscientist and he works on um, various responses in the brain, but he doesn't specifically work on touch. He's just a fanboy is what he calls himself. So he is a fanatic about our sense of touch and thinks that it involves many, many different senses. So he went around and spoke to all of these experts in the field and wrote this book the science t- called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And he's fascinated and, with the subject and he's fascinating to talk to and he has so many thoughts and he's a fantastic interview, which is kind of a rare find. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, so he was our guy and he gave, you know, we like to call it an informed opinion because uh, a lot of times science isn't totally behind uh, a lot of the subjects that we cover like tickling not a ton of research on it well tell me this then he you know as, and i'm going to read because i love reading from writers work um and then you just advance the ball at this point early in the article you write some scientists have argued that being ticklish is a defensive reflex against attack but dr linden finds that explanation wanting why is that so if you think about it it kind of seems like that's a good explanation, right? Like the places where you're super ticklish, you know, around your neck, where you have a major gland, where you have major uh, vein around your, under your armpit. So that works. But then when you think about like your bottoms of your feet, well, that's not going to kill you in battle, right? Right. <laughs> if you're you're stabbed in the foot or something like that. So that's sort of that's why Dr. Lennon believes that this isn't really a fully thought through idea. So he doesn't think that it's that that's why we've evolved. All these things are evolutionarily based. I mean, I'm a firm believer in, in trying to understand why we do what we do based on evolutionary um, devices. So so yeah. So we just he doesn't believe, and I agree with him. He doesn't believe that that. It's a reflex against attack. It doesn't seem to carry through. So then he goes on, and I'll read again. He compares being ticklish to having an itch, which most experts believe evolved as a protective measure against infestation by insects or worms. Talk about that. Kind of gross, but yep. kind of makes sense. Because when you're in your itching, um, when you have an itch, um, like a tickle, it's a specific kind of feeling that requires an immediate response. 
So um, unlike pain, which can be chronic or you can, it can linger and you cannot deal with it, like a headache or a throbbing or um, something even that's acute, but passing um, an, an itch like a tickle, it, it provokes a very immediate response. So you might think that the, the, the tickle response is like, oh, there's like a worm crawling on me. I'm living in the cave. I'm thinking of cavemen. Right. And I'm living in a cave and there's like a bug or something. And so it's ticklish. And so I go, ah, and, I, and I immediately push it away. Right. Um, but honestly, and that seems to be a pretty good explanation because bugs tend to be tickly on us. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been scientifically proven. Yeah, it's and it's interesting. You, you wrote here, still, the neuroscientist says, we honestly don't know why humans are ticklish. By the way, I love it when a scientist can have some theories, <laughs> but then just finally admit, look, we've studied this eight different ways. I'll tell you something else that was interesting, though. He says there is no indication being ticklish is inherited. He has seen tickling across every culture. So imagine this. He's studying tickling across cultures and says the behavior is often informed by social norms, taboos, and the setting in which it takes place, which, by the way, would be my theory. He says then, if someone is really angry, you can't tickle them. Um, talk about that, the setting. So I think that the, the non-inheriting part of it is, is so fascinating, right? Because you often hear people say, oh, I'm ticklish because my dad is so ticklish, you know, and it's just never, there's no link proven. There's no, he said, I wish I could just, you know, take the ticklish part of your feet and, and bisect it, dissect it. And I'd find like a whole bunch of neurons affiliated with the tickle response that is just not there. They have, just doesn't exist. And even though, um, and actually he's seen ticklish across, being ticklish across um, every single culture, um, yes, and also in, in lemurs. He said he's seen videos of lemurs that seem to have a human-like response to being tickled. Um, and you've seen it with, like, your dog, your cat. I mean, they seem to, like, enjoy it. I don't know if it's the same quite response, similar response, but not quite the same. But um, but what is so important is the situation. So tickling, unlike many other of our responses, is so situational. So if you're if you're if you're you're in love with somebody and you're having a, a moment and you're looking into each other's eyes and then he like caresses your face, you know, you might tickle and giggle and it feels good. If you're in the middle of a heated argument and he does the exact same thing, you're it's, you're not gonna feel that same Oh yeah, I, I've like, tried that. I, I, I've tried that one. That doesn't work. That doesn't. My wife doesn't let me do that. That that doesn't get me anywhere. Let me share this from you. It's not going to break the argument. That's for sure. Not breaking the argument. Maybe breaking a bone in my body. Actually, I got to be careful when I when I get too clever. Elbow. Exactly. So most people you wrote here also aren't able to tickle themselves. And here's where the doctor says something interesting. When you go to tickle yourself, your brain is sending a message to the tickling hand and a copy is going to the cerebellum, which sends inhibitory signals to dampen the sensation. We know this because people who have damage to their cerebellum are able to tickle themselves, says Dr. Linden. Now, this is really fascinating. I've never actually tried to tickle myself. I went ahead and actually did try, and I couldn't. And I am still very ticklish. We'll get to that in a second. Talk about why, as people get older, they, are lo they tend to lose the ticklish sensation they once had. Well, first of all, the, the, the not being able to tickle yourself thing is so interesting because basically what's happening is, and this is again evolutionary, so you're walking down the street and your clothes are kind of rubbing against you and they're kind of tickly if you were to think about it, mm -hmm. but you don't think about it because you have to think about, well, 
am I being attacked? What food do I want to eat? Who do I want to mate with? So our bodies, our minds have evolved to take that signal of um, your clothes rubbing against your body, just as an example, or your hand moving toward your wrist to caress it. And damp sends uh, that copies that message and sends it to your cerebellum. It says, just don't think too much about that. It's not important. Focus right. on, you know, mating and finding food and shelter. Right. Um, so that's why you can't really tickle yourself. Um, as far as getting older, um, you know, it's not totally proven, but the feeling, the thought is that as starting at age 20, you start to lose a little bit of your nerve endings on your skin as you get older. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's very small, like 1% a year. Right. So that old people maybe don't have any feeling of, of any sensation on the bottoms of their feet, which is one, one reason why maybe they fall more often. Um, it's just one of many, many reasons. But there's other responses that we, we, the nerve endings are no longer quite attuned to, like heat and cold and pressure and, and, and pain. And so, um, so as we get older, yes, we become less ticklish. It's just one of the many senses. Uh, that we that we that diminish as we get older. So I guess if you live to a hundred, like we're all going to live to a hundred, we'll, we won't be hot, we won't be cold, awesome. and we won't um, be ticklish. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good things come of this. Won't feel pain, maybe. <laughs> some good Heidi, things come of it. <laughs> Heidi, we are we are we love this. Uh, email us when you have stories like this. Heidi Mitchell, tickling the Wall Street Journal. Go figure. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Back with more after these messages.